Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest today is author Will Perez, Ph.D. Today we will discuss issues relating to undocumented students based on his book, We Are Americans, Undocumented Students Pursuing the American Dream. Born in San Salvador, El Salvador, William came to the United States in the early 1980s at the age of 10 to escape the civil war that began in 1979. He spent his remaining childhood in Pomona, California, attended Pomona College, and later earned a Ph.D. in Child and Adolescent Development from Stanford University. A professor at Claremont Graduate University, William is an emerging leader on research that examines the social and psychological development of immigrant and Latino students. He brings the depth of research experience to bear on the complex problems of academic achievement and higher education access. His research has been funded by the Haynes Foundation and the Fletcher Jones Foundation. He currently lives in the Los Angeles neighborhood of Los Feliz, where he enjoys hiking the trails in nearby Griffith Park. He competes in triathlons and is an avid fan of the local indie rock scene. Will, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be uh, with you today. Thank you for joining us. This is, I think, a topic of great interest, especially for educators and marketers, because, of course, the youth segment is so important for our future. Some of the numbers that you share in the book are really amazing. 2.4 million children and adults, 24 age 24 years of age and younger who are undocumented. That's a lot. Would you tell us a little bit more about those numbers, Will? Sure. Uh, And actually, that number that is included in the book uh, is now outdated. There is a new statistic that came out uh, shortly after the book was published, um, and that figure is actually higher. It's uh, it's about 3.1 million uh, children and young adults uh, who live in the United States uh, you know, came here when they were very young. Um, however, they were brought by their parents uh, without legal authorization, without the uh, visa and paperwork. And so they lack legal status. And, you know, as they are preparing to transition to college, uh, you know, they face a variety of barriers. Um, and, you know, there's not a lot that has been written about this student population. Um, and I think it's particularly important for, you know, individuals that are interested in uh, understanding the factors that impact the Latino population that we know about, you know, what is the nature of the challenges that these young adults face and what does that mean uh, for the future of Latinos uh, in the U.S.? So just to make sure that we have our arms around those numbers, you're saying that there are 3.1 million children and young adults in the United States, so they're part of the school system, that have no legal status from an immigration perspective. Is that right? Correct. Uh, And these are uh, under the age of 24. Right, so children and young adults. So some of these, of course, are going to be in the public school system as well as in the colleges and universities. Correct. Well, about half of that figure, so about 1.5, are enrolled in K-12 to schooling. Um, So they're high school age or younger. Uh, The other half are young adults who either have graduated from high school, 
have dropped out from high school or have graduated from high school and are currently enrolled in college or have enrolled in college and may not be enrolled, um, you know, at the current time. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a population that's really difficult to study because, you know, they're very hesitant to talk to people about their experiences. Um, so that's our best estimate. Um, and unfortunately, you know, one of the bleak findings uh, in studying this population is that a large percentage of them actually do not complete high school. And, and a lot of that has to do with the challenges that they face because of their legal status. How is it that they are able to enroll in the school system and get jobs and enroll in the universities if they have no legal status? Mm-hmm. Do they have documents? How does this happen? Well, um, the reason why uh, uh, undocumented children are able to enroll in public schooling in the United States today uh, is due to a Supreme Court ruling uh, that took place in 1982. Uh, this ruling has, uh, is known as the Plyler versus Doe um, ruling. And, you know, back in 1975, school districts across the country um, actually uh, pre- tried to prevent undocumented children from enrolling in public schools. Uh, well, a group of parents and ultimately um, other immigrant rights organizations uh, challenged that in the courts, um, and seven years later, um, that uh, legal case made its way to the Supreme Court, where the Supreme Court ruled that it is unconstitutional to deny public schooling to children based on their legal status. Um, so for that reason, schools in the United States are not allowed by law to ask children about their legal status um, when they come to enroll um, for, for school. Um, unfortunately, uh, that ruling only applies for K-12 education. So after that, um, particularly for those uh, students that do really well and want to go on to college, um, especially now that, you know, a college education is really sort of, a, uh, sort of the minimum necessary for a lot of the high-skilled, um, you know, uh, knowledge-based uh, jobs uh, that are, you know, for which there's a need for uh, workers, uh, you need a college education. And so these young adults are not able to, you know, get that preparation uh, because of their status. They're not eligible for financial aid. Uh, they're not eligible for loans. Um, and in many states, with the exception of 11 states, they are treated as international students. Uh, so even though, you know, they might have been here since, you know, they were only a few months old, as far as uh, the universities are concerned in some of these states, they're treated as international students. And the tuition rate for uh, international students is oftentimes as high as 10 times what in-state residents have to pay. So, you know, we have to keep in mind that most of these students, these Latino students, come from very humble economic backgrounds. These are families uh, that live at or below the poverty line. So having to pay high tuition rates, uh, it's, a, it's a great deterrent for them because, you know, there's no way that they can afford that um, without any type of financial aid. Um, and so that, that's really the situation today that, you know, by law they're protected uh, in terms of access to schooling uh, up until high school, but after that, 
they they face a, a lot of obstacles and you know states have been frustrated because the federal government has not been able to pass uh, immigration reform uh, legislation to to address this issue, not just these 3.1 million young adults, but also uh, you know the remaining you know nine million uh, adults uh, that are estimated to live in the United States uh, without legal authorization. Well, what percentage of the overall population in this age range? are we talking about? In other words, 3.1 undocumented young adults and children is what percent of the total population of 24 and under? Do you know? Uh, of 24 and under of uh, the total uh, U.S. Uh, student population or Latino population? Oh, overall, because of course we know that the growth in the United States is coming from the emerging markets, which include you know, to a very high percentage Latinos. Uh-huh, uh-huh. So I imagine that this is a very high percentage of the overall population in that age group. Right. So uh, immigrant children generally uh, in the school age population in the United States, immigrant children account for about 20% uh, of uh, of the of the population, uh, for Latinos that means that you know undocumented children are probably in the neighborhood of uh, between. Uh, I'm trying to remember this the best estimate. Probably a third of that population are undocumented. A third of um, immigrant Latino students enrolled in public schooling today. So just to make sure that I understand, a third of the 20% of immigrant children mm-hmm. but that are immig- without legal status. Okay. I think the question that comes to a lot of people's minds when when they first look at the situation is, well, why don't they go back to their country of origin if they can't mm-hmm. get into the university system here once they graduate from high school which you're saying is one of the bigger challenges why don't they go back to their country of origin or the country mm-hmm. of origin of their parents mm-hmm. um, that's uh, you know uh, that's uh, I, you know a perspective that oftentimes you know comes up in, in discussions and debates about comprehensive immigration reform uh, the merits of providing a path to legalization for the 12 million um, individuals who live uh, in the U.S. today without legal authorization. And, you know, as I highlight in, in the book, um, just to give you a sense of how much of these young adults' lives is influenced by American society, that, that their view of themselves is, you know, is as Americans. Um, so, for example, in the study that, that the book is based on, uh, we found that on average, we surveyed 187 um, young adults across the country, uh, and we interviewed 102 of them. And we found that with this group um, of students, that on average, they came to the United States when they were seven years old. Okay. So uh, at the time that we interviewed them and surveyed them, they were on average about 20 years old. Um, that means that they had been in the United States, um, you know, almost 14 years, uh, which is the majority of their life. I mean, all of their schooling, all of their formative years were in the U.S. Uh, for many of them, their dominant language uh, is English, uh, even though most of them are bilingual. 
English is their dominant language. Uh, you know, their cultural preferences, their, you know, their sense of self is that of being American. And so, you know, asking them to return to the country of origin would be asking them to go to, I mean, they might as well go to another country because it's that foreign to them because they've never had any experience or connection to it. Um, and that's different than, you know, a lot of, you know, immigrant uh, young adults uh, growing up today, uh, you know, particularly, let's say, from, from Mexico, that, you know, a lot of times, you know, families who are able to go back and forth, that they actually spend a significant amount of time, you know, visiting with relatives, spending time in Mexico or, or their country of origin. And so that at least gives them a sense of connectedness to that country of origin. But for undocumented uh, young adults, you know, they're not able to travel because of their status. And so they have never been back to their country of origin uh, since their parents, you know, brought them to the U.S. Um, so for them, you know, it's, it's, it's unthinkable because it's, it's, it's a place that they don't know and, you know, and, and wouldn't really be able to function as well as they, are, they, they function here in the U.S., um, especially for those that are college-going that, you know, have very high academic backgrounds, um, you know, have all of the preparation uh, that they need to get into uh, top universities. Um, you know, those options are just not available for them um, in their country of origin. I mean, especially because there, you know, the cost of education is also very prohibitive and, you know, and they don't really have the financial means to be able to do that. So this is definitely a difficult situation. You have children who, through no fault or certainly no decision-making of their own, are now in the United States and who, for all intents and purposes, consider themselves to be Americans, who have gone through an American school system, have American friends and American values, perhaps, in a lot of ways. Exactly, exactly. What solutions are available to them? What What is going on with those children right now? Well, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, the, the legislative process um, has been very slow going. I mean, immigration is one of these, um, you know, hot button issues that, um, you know, uh, conversations about it oftentimes, you know, can easily become heated or, or, or controversial. For that reason, um, you know, these young adults uh, have pretty much have been in a, in a sort of standby waiting mode for a very long time. Now, as early as 2001, when, you know, a significant number of students, you know, stories are kept coming up in the paper about a high school valedictorian or a top student in, in a high school couldn't go to college or, or was accepted into Harvard and couldn't attend because of her or his status, that, you know, enough of these stories started you know, to come out in, in, in media coverage that, you know, uh, members of Congress decided to um, introduce a piece of legislation that has been, uh, has come to be known as the DREAM Act. Um, so initially introduced in 2001, um, undocumented students are still waiting for the passage of the DREAM Act. It's, it's going to be almost 10 years now, and they've been waiting. Um, now, the states, you know, they've been frustrated because, you know, the states, you know, cannot set immigration law. That's the jurisdiction of the federal government. So given sort of the, the limitations that they have, 
11 states, uh, California being one of them, Texas, New Mexico, uh, Wisconsin, Illinois, uh, New York, for example. Um, 11 of these states have decided to do what they can, um, and they have passed uh, in-state tuition legislation. So what that means is that the undocumented students that graduate from those schools in those states are eligible to attend university and pay the same rate that in-state residents pay. Um, you know, before these laws took effect, you know, they were treated as international students, and the rates were oftentimes, you know, ten times higher. Um, two states have gone a step further, uh, Texas and New Mexico, and they have uh, made available to students funds from the state to pay for tuition costs. Um, here in California, uh, the legislature has um, approved uh, leg similar legislation that would provide in-state tuition funds for undocumented students. But unfortunately, uh, the current governor, uh, Governor Schwarzenegger, has uh, vetoed that legislation uh, three years in a row. Uh, there is now a uh, uh, process of reintroduction of the what's been known uh, as the California Dream Act, um, for a fourth time uh, in hopes that this time the governor will sign it into law. Um, in the meantime, you know, we wait for the DREAM Act or comprehensive immigration reform. And, you know, as I uh, chronicle in the book, you know, students are doing a variety of different things uh, while they wait. Uh, and for many of them, for example, you know, they um, attend college um, but oftentimes, you know, it's a hardship because they have to work multiple jobs in the informal economy where they get paid low wages despite their high skills to pay for college uh, and to get their degree. Uh, there are many now that have their degree, but they're not able to do much with them. So um, they're also uh, in a waiting pattern. Um, so many of them have turned to... Um, uh, sort of the, the political process and have become engaged in activism um, advocating for the passage of the DREAM Act or and comprehensive immigration reform. Um, and that's, you know, one of the things that, uh, you know, emerged in the work uh, that I've been doing for the past four years. Um, and it continues to be a growing movement with these young adults, this, this uh, civic engagement, this, this high level of activism, um, because, you know, I, I think the frustration for them is increasing um, given, you know, how long they've, they've been waiting for these laws that, that still, you know, have not been passed. Well, as you know, the subject of immigration and immigration reform are highly controversial and cause heated debate even amongst the most civil among us. Mm-hmm. What would you say to to those people who argue that these young adults and these children have no place in the United States, that they came here illegally and that they don't belong, why would you say that they do belong, that they should be welcomed and embraced as they are being embraced, as you shared a moment ago, in some of the states. What argument, what pragmatic argument, uh, beyond the just emotional feelings that a lot of people express, but what pragmatic, let's say, business-oriented argument would you make in favor 
of finding a place for this 3.1 million students, young adults, children that have no official legal status in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, one of the things that I've um, that I've argued, that I argue in, in the book's introduction, and, and I've argued in, in my own um, academic work, is that you know, oftentimes the public debate. Um, frames the issue of, you know, uh, legalization for undocumented students um, as one of rewarding illegal behavior, you know, sort of characterizing uh, these young adults and their families as lawbreakers. And, you know, my position is that by approaching the topic in that manner, it prevents us from engaging in a conversation to find a solution um, to the situation. You know, it's it's very difficult to get past that um, that idea of a lawbreaker to say, okay, this is these are the things that we need to do to correct the situation. The reality is that um, if if we did what a lot of anti-immigrant groups uh, argue to just deport, you know, these 12 million individuals, not only would it be a gross violation of civil rights, um, but it would cost, you know, U.S. taxpayers billions of dollars to do that. And that's just not feasible. I mean, you, you, we cannot, you know, not to mention the negative impact on the economy. I mean, just in the past month, in January of 2009, uh, three different studies came out, um, and these aren't the only studies, these are the most recent ones, uh, that were released by researchers at UCLA, at USC, uh, at the Public Policy Institute of California. All of these studies show the economic benefits of legalization um, of undocumented workers uh, and students and their families. Uh, it's significant. I mean, we're talking in the billions uh, of benefits to the economy uh, if we provide that path to legalization. So I think the economic argument is a very strong one. But also, um, something that I've argued recently, I've been uh, writing a column for the Huffington Post, and I did an analysis of poll data dating back for five years. So this is the poll data, sort of these public opinion polls uh, run by, you know, the New York Times, you know, the Washington Post, the LA Times, you know, Fox News, ABC News. And my analysis of these five years of poll data show consistently, and as recent as December of 2009, that between 62 and 68% of Americans support providing a path to legalization for um, undocumented individuals in the U.S. So, in, so but, but I think it's important to recognize that these polls also show that Americans have negative feelings about immigrants, that they think that there are too many immigrants already. I mean, they express all of these negative feelings about and attitudes about immigrants. But nevertheless, when asked, you know, Pragmatically, what what should we do to address this issue? Over two thirds of Americans support providing a path to legalization. So most Americans already agree that this is the best solution. You know, that the ones that is the least costly, the one that's you know likely to yield you know, the highest return um, for American society on economic um, terms, but also. Um, 
in, in social terms. We know, for example, that if these young adults are able to complete their college education, there is you know, a large body of a research that shows that people with a college education, um, you know, are more civically engaged, you know, donate more to charity, are more likely to uh, assume leadership positions in their communities. I mean, these are the folks that, you know, are on the city councils, on the school boards, that run for, you know, the state government, for the federal government. And these in, these young adults, you know, in, in their civic engagement um, activities now, they're developing those skills. And without providing a path to legalization, we're losing out on that talent. So now you have an economic argument, you have a public opinion argument, but you also have a social contribution argument. Um, and, I, you know, a final argument that uh, I think makes a compelling case for providing a path to legalization is the fact that, for example, you know, as I was doing the work for this project, I found that over 100 national organizations and 800 local organizations across the country support the passage of uh, the DREAM Act or Comprehensive Immigration Reform. And these are organizations um, like the National PTA, the College Board, um, you know, the National Association of, of Counseling Professionals. Um, not just that, uh, but in April of 2009, Microsoft Corporation, uh, you know, a Fortune 500 company, sent a letter to Congress saying, we need the DREAM Act, we need comprehensive immigration reform. Shortly after that, uh, the mayor of New York, Michael Bloomberg, also sent a letter to Congress that was signed by other Fortune 500 companies, by, you know, sort of the Wall Street community. So Macy's, uh, Citibank, you know, all of these large corporations are saying, you know, we need to pass this legislation. Um, and most recently, you know, the president of the most prestigious universities in the world, the president of Harvard, the president of Brown University, uh, the president of Stanford University. Uh, just uh, last week, uh, the first week of February 2009, the president of uh, the University of Pennsylvania wrote a letter uh, to her congressional delegation saying we need to pass the DREAM Act, we need uh, comprehensive immigration reform. So all of that, uh, I think makes a very clear argument about the need to pass this legend, legislation sooner rather than later. In your book, in the introduction, you talk about the economic contributions of undocumented immigrants and you point to specific instances such as a 2006 study by the Texas State Controller saying uh-huh. that there is an estimated $1.4 million of undocumented immigrants in Texas for the fiscal year 2004. I'm sorry, 2005. Yes. Would you tell us a little bit more about that as well as the purchasing power that you mentioned in that introduction? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, you know, um, many arguments have been made for comprehensive immigration reform and the DREAM Act. The most powerful and consistent one has always been the economic argument. And the state of Texas, which was the first state um, to pass in-state tuition legislation uh, for undocumented students, 
they were able to pass that law using a solid economic argument. And what they said, what they found, the state controller's office went and did an uh, economic impact analysis of what kind of impact would this law have on the economy of the state of Texas. And what they found was that if we provide access to higher education for undocumented students, for every dollar that the state of Texas invests in educating undocumented students to go to college, that the Texas economy gets $5 back. I mean, that rate of return exceeds any rate of return that you can get even in the best Wall Street investment uh, you know, portfolios. Um, and, and so in Texas, it was, it was very easy to get public support for the legislation because, you know, everyone sees a benefit to them. These are folks that, uh, because of their higher wages, um, are going to be able to uh, be uh, consumers uh, of, 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 of products which create jobs uh, and stimulate economic growth. Um, but also, these are folks that, you know, we know that with the college education, you're less likely to, for example, have an encounter with the legal system. Uh, you're less likely to, um, you know, have to rely on social services. Um, you're, uh, you're more likely to be healthy, which means that you're less likely to have a negative impact on uh, the health services, uh, the public health services uh, that the state provides. So for all of these reasons... Um, you know, Texas uh, was the first one to really make a push for the institution legislation, and it was driven primarily by that economic argument. A lot of people express concern for undocumented immigrants and Latinos in general saying that uh, they over-index in the crime statistics mm-hmm. and that um, they're because they're marginalized or because of their culture, they tend to be involved in crimes more often than other groups. And, of course, we know that there has been an increase in anti-hate groups at mm-hmm. the national level that are specifically targeting Latinos because of this perception. What are your findings in relation to your research and the the students that you have interviewed? Do you find any evidence that this is the case? You know, that that is a very common misconception about immigrants. And, um, you know, one of the... One of the things that's dismaying to me as, as an academic, you know, is sort of watching uh, these uh, public discourses around immigration where, you know, those kinds of assertions are made about um, undocumented populations. And so for that reason, in the introduction to the book, I dedicate um, uh, most of the introduction um, to addressing these misconceptions. And, and what I do is, you know, not base it on my own personal opinion, but rather to look at, you know, what does the evidence say? What do the statistics actually show about these trends? So one of the misconceptions about undocumented uh, individuals is that they're overly represented in the uh, prison population or they have high rates uh, of criminality. Every study that has examined this finds the exact opposite, that in fact, 
um, undocumented immigrants are underrepresented in the prison population. And in fact, for states that have seen the highest increase of undocumented immigrants, the crime rates have actually decreased uh, during that period of g population growth of undocumented um, uh, individuals. Um, and so several statistics done by different organizations, uh, one of the big ones that has been done here in California is, is one that was conducted by the nonpartisan um, research institute, uh, the Public Policy Institute of California, that they find that uh, undocumented immigrants in the California prison system, um, that the percentage there is half of what the, their actual population is in the state of California. So they're, uh, they're underrepresented in that. So that means that they're less likely to commit a crime compared to um, a U.S.-born person. The other misconception about undocumented uh, individuals is that they put a strain on uh, the healthcare system that you know that they go and get uh, access to uh, to healthcare and you know that that came up recently uh, in conversations relating to uh, you know health reform uh, or healthcare reform and you know again what the research shows is that in fact they underutilize uh, medical facilities and services uh, relative to their uh, proportion of the population. And one of the um, studies that is oftentimes cited that supports this, and it's not the only one, uh, is a study that was conducted, uh, again, by the nonpartisan uh, group uh, called the RAND Corporation. The RAND Corporation, a few years ago, uh, conducted a study looking at, at this specific issue. And they find that, in fact, you know, because undocumented immigrants are worried about their status and they worry about having any kind of interaction with any government agency because they worry about deportation, that they're less likely to seek out medical help. And when they do seek out medical help, they're more likely to pay out of pocket. Um, and so, you know, they're actually paying, you know, uh, in cash uh, anytime they go uh, to uh, to get you know medical help uh, that they need, um, and so again you know th this is uh, evidence that goes against sort of the common misconception about undocumented immigrants in the United States, um, and this is you know research that has been done by groups that have no vested interest that you know that don't um, advocate or lobby for any particular position on immigration. I mean, you know, their 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 goal is to be um, a neutral and objective voice in this debate, um, and they find you know no support for these uh, misconceptions. Unfortunately, you know, these misconceptions get repeated in the media. Many people don't question that, and uh, you know, and that's how kind of the anti-immigrant sentiment is further fueled. Um, in people's minds. Well, you mentioned a moment ago relationships and that these organizations that have conducted some of the research have no relationships and no vested interest. Are you receiving funding from any organization other than what you do in your regular job toward the support of this research or your findings in favor of the DREAM Act? Uh, I am I am not receiving any uh, funding, any research funding for any of the work that I do, and 
and you know and and part of the reason is is because actually a lot of funding agencies because of the controversial nature of the topic uh that they're not uh very willing to to fund this research so this is a research that is funded primarily through uh you know research grants that I get through my university to do uh you know just to do you know my 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 work as a researcher and in relation to that work, part of what you discovered was, and correct me if I'm understanding this wrong, but that the level of civic engagement of these young adults and children was surprisingly high. Is that right? That, that is correct. And that is really one of the most significant findings um, in, in my work. I mean, when I, I started to do this uh you know this this study you know when I began to interview uh young adults and 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 to do surveys with them, I was primarily interested in understanding their academic experiences you know what was it like to be an undocumented student in school? what was it like to be a student in college with all of the challenges that they face uh, that was really my primary goal because I wanted to uh generate uh information that would help discussions uh, relating to the DREAM Act. To my surprise, one of the most um, salient things that came out, one of the, the highlights of that work, something that kept coming up in all of the interviews and all of the work, all the people that I talked to, was the high level of community service and volunteer work that students were doing. And initially, to me, I, I, was, I, I was puzzled by that because, you know, um, these are, are young adults that you know clearly describe how they feel marginalized, how they feel rejected by American society, that they feel you know limited in so many ways. You know, they struggle many of them with multiple jobs. They struggle with the challenges of living in poverty because many of them come from families uh, that are low income or that you know struggle financially. That you know. Most of the research that looks at volunteerism and community service finds that you're less likely to do volunteer work in community service if you face those types of challenges that undocumented students face. But surprisingly, uh, in my work, I found the opposite. Um, so I spent a lot of time analyzing uh, that um, after I conducted the interviews, and I came to find that on average, uh, this group of students that I surveyed um, report volunteer and community service rates that are, in fact, higher than the national average. So the national average of volunteer work for young adults, you know, between, you know, 18, sort of high school age and, and, and college, the average uh, volunteer rate is about 58% of young adults in that age range um, do volunteer work uh, of, some, of some form. With the students that I surveyed and interviewed, I found volunteer rates, um, you know, the, the low end was 66% and the high end was, you know, uh, 69%. I mean, it, there were rates that were higher than what the national average is. And, and I think it's, for me, it's something that it's important to highlight because it shows another dimension by which undocumented young adults contribute to American society. So, you know, we've, we've used the economic argument. You know, we, we understand very well how they contribute to the well-being of, 
of the American economy. But, but what this work highlights is that they contribute in other ways as well uh, through the volunteer work that they do, uh, through the community service uh, that they're doing, uh, despite the challenges that they face, which makes it even more extraordinary. And when we're talking about civic engagement uh, from the information that I'm looking at here, you're referring to young adults and children in high school and even younger that are dedicating part of their free time to feeding or caring for the homeless, the poor, the sick, the elderly, or the handicapped, and who have high levels of activism. Is that right? That's correct, yes. I know that specifics are hard to come by because, of course, there's a lot of fear on the part of these young adults. But do you have any specifics that help us understand, for example, the geographic location? Are they more likely to be located, say, for example, in states that have historically had high percentages of Latinos like California and Texas and Florida, or are you seeing different patterns? Yes, the vast majority of undocumented young adults live uh, in California, Texas, uh, Florida, um, Illinois, um, and, and New York. Um, you know, about eighty percent of them are uh, in those uh, residing in those states. However, you know, there's Along with sort of this uh, new trend with immigration where, you know, new immigrant communities are emerging in places that historically have not been immigrant receiving um, places, uh, places in the Midwest like Iowa, for example, or even the Carolinas or Georgia, that um, that there is an increasing uh, number of, uh, of undocumented students who reside uh, in those states. Um, and, you know, and, and just to give you a sense of how, uh, these, um, these patterns are changing, um, just, uh, in January of, uh, 2010, um, the legislature, uh, in the state of Missouri introduced, um, a bill that would provide in-state, uh, tuition to undocumented students uh, in the state of Missouri. I mean, Missouri is not known as a as an immigrant destination, but the fact that uh, the, the Missouri legislature has introduced this bill tells us that you know that there is a significant number of students there, um, and you know, and that's uh, and that's that's a new trend. You know that you know that that has not been known as an immigrant receiving state. Is there a higher percentage of young women versus young men, or is it divided equally, boys and girls? Uh, in, in terms of the college-going group, you mean? But I'd, overall, or if there's another way that you would like to break it down? Sure. Um, you know, unfortunately, and this this is a trend that mirrors, um, you know, the, the same trends that we see with, uh, with other Latino students in the U.S., that there's a high dropout rate um, of of, uh, of male uh, young adults, um, and of those that are college going, uh, they tend to be primary young women. So, you know, a, a trend that mirrors, you know, the trend with the Latino student population generally is that um, 
that there's a high dropout rate for undocumented young males. Um, and when we look at the college-going rate, uh, it's also a majority of uh, young women. So for, just to give you a, a comparison statistic, um, in, the, in the U.S., of Latinos that are going to college, 63% of them are female. Uh, in, in this uh, study that we did, um, uh, it was 65% that were female. So about two-thirds of the college-going students are female. So this is a group that is primarily young women. Uh, young men, unfortunately, um, are less likely to go to college and are also less likely to graduate from high school. Are there any other characteristics that set them apart from other young adults and students because of this undocumented? So, um, you know, just to give you a sense of, you know, what these students, uh, what their lives are like, um, these are students that, um, like many immigrant uh, Latino students coming from Latin America, um, that they're students that come from homes uh, with low levels of parent education. Uh, so on average, uh, these students have parents that have less than a high school education. So for them, um, an additional layer uh, in terms of challenges is that they're the first in their family to go to college. Um, and so we know, for example, that it's much more difficult for children who are their, for the first in their family to go to college to go through that process because, you know, they don't have a family history or a relative that they can rely on for sort of figuring out that process. Um, and, and so the other challenge that they face is that these are students that oftentimes have to work multiple jobs. Um, and so, for example, we found that on average during high school, students worked uh, an average of about 20 hours per week and once they got into, they went to college, that average went up to 30 hours per week. And this is on top of, you know, being full-time students. And part of the reason why they work a long hours is, you know, that they have to pay for a lot of their schooling costs. But also they come from low-income families where, you know, they are um, expected to contribute financially to the family's well-being. Um, so that's, you know, that's certainly something that is much more unique to them um, relative to students, for example, who come from families where, um, you know, they're sort of higher incomes or middle class. Um, and uh, another characteristic that we found with the students that, that, that I interviewed was that, you know, a lot of them also have um, several family responsibilities, particularly, you know, these young women have, um, you know, sort of... Uh, chores that they have to do at home. Oftentimes, they have to also care for their younger siblings because their parents work long hours and sort of uh, low-wage jobs. Um, and so, you know, they have several things that they have to balance. Um, but I think what is, you know, extraordinary about them is that, you know, they have to do all these things. They have to work long hours in the page. Uh, they're going to school. They have these responsibilities at home and yet they're still excelling in college while at the same time, and in high school for that matter, while at the same time engage in various extracurricular activities um, and the volunteer work and community service that I mentioned earlier. We know from 
marketing research that Latinos in general and young Latinos in particular tend to over-index. They tend to buy more, if you will, than the general population. Uh, specifically when it comes to entertainment and clothing and computers, they tend to buy more as a percentage of their income and their overall economic reach than other groups. Do you see a similar characteristic among these young adults and students, children? I think, um, you know, compared to other uh, immigrant young adults, uh, immigrant Latino young adults that I've studied before in my work, um, they're less likely to, um, to, to demonstrate those types of spending patterns. And, and, and part of the reason has to do with, with the extreme economic hardship that they face. I mean, many of them, for example, you know, even sort of lack sort of something that's sort of seen that is as a basic necessity for young adults these days, and that's a cell phone. Many of them, you know, because of economic hardship, are not always able to have, um, you know, even a cell phone available, even though, you know, that's kind of become, you know, a sort of indispensable. Um, <clears throat> for many of them, um, you know, they don't, they don't even have that. For... For people who are trying to gain a better understanding of this segment of the population, which is significant, 3.1 million, what recommendations would you share, Will? How can they become better informed? How can they understand this group? Uh, Because of the challenges that are involved, are there resources out there? What, what, What suggestions would you make? to those who want to gain a better understanding of this population? Sure. You know, the main reason why I wrote this book, We Are Americans, um, is precisely to help um, concerned citizens uh, to uh, provide information for those that, you know, may be on the fence about the issue or that may be ambivalent about the issue or may, in fact, feel... Uh, negatively towards, you know, providing a path to legalization, that I think if people, you know, come to understand the experiences of these young adults and these families as, 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 as that of human beings just like the rest of us who have the same ambitions, the same fears, the same hopes, the same desire to, you know, to care for their family, to, to, to accomplish their dreams, that, you know, that I really tried really hard to convey that so that if we can get past sort of these misconceptions and sort of this demonization, then I think we can begin to see how we can play a role in correcting this injustice. Um, because, you know, as I highlight um, in my work is that it's not just the 3.1 million young adults it's also their families, you know, that, that even if, you know, we were able to provide a path to legalization for them, um, they are still going to experience uh, various forms of hardship if they have to worry about being separated from their parents because, you know, they're, they're getting deported or because, you know, they worry that they will be deported. So, so we have to also consider, you know, the, the, the 12 million, you know, the, the, the other adults, but also... There are 4 million children 
primary Latino, 85% of the undocumented population is Latino, that um, these 4 million children who are U.S. citizens born here but are born of parents who are undocumented. And the tragedy of separating these young adults or forcing these U.S. citizen children to go to a country that they don't know because, you know, we, we're not providing a path to legalization for their parents, that, that that's, I mean, that's a, a significant tragedy. Um, and so that if we understand that, then we can, as concerned citizens, play a role in the political process by writing to our congressional representatives uh, in both the House and the Senate, by you know contributing to discussions um, you know in blogs on the internet now you know you can go to any newspaper whether it's the LA Times and the New York Times if there's an article there uh, that is about immigration usually people comment on that to to contribute to that conversation and and even more to be to get involved with some of these national and local uh, efforts to advocate and lobby for immigration reform. I mean, I think that there is a benefit not just to the undocumented community, but there's a benefit for all of us, uh, you know, that economically the, the contribution of these individuals um, that will benefit everyone, um, you know, are not going to be realized until we get uh, the laws uh, changed. Um, and so... That's my recommendation to, you know, if, if you are compelled by this, if you understand what the facts are and are able to recognize that from the sort of the misinformation that's out there, that hopefully you as a concerned citizen will, you know, engage in the political process by, you know, writing to your representatives or, or even, you know, becoming involved in some of these um, immigration reform efforts. Well, Beyond reading your book, are there resources available to those individuals who want to become better informed? Where can they go to learn more about the characteristics of this group of 3.1 million people that you talk about in the book? I'll give you three uh, resources that I think will be a good start and are very helpful and have lots of information. Uh, the first one is the uh, MALDEF uh, website. Uh, this is uh, the Mex- Mexican American Legal Defense Fund. Uh, so MALDEF.org. Uh, they have a whole uh, series of resources and information available for people. Um, another great resource is the website for uh, the National Immigration um, Law Center uh, at org. Uh, they also have a lot of information about this issue and specific information for folks that want to get involved or, or want to write to their um, representative in Congress. Um, and also another great resource is uh, the National Council of La Raza um, has various resources available for people on their website to, uh, to learn more about the issue and to find out um, how to get involved. To summarize, they would want to visit M-A-L-D-E-F dot O-R-G. Correct. N-I-L-C dot mm-hmm. And N-C-L-R is that right? That's correct. Thank you, William, for joining us today from Los Angeles, California. Thank you very much uh, for speaking with me today.
And to our audience, thank you for listening to author William Perez, Ph.D., who discussed issues relating to undocumented students based on his book, We Are Americans, Undocumented Students Pursuing the American Dream. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the HispanicMPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at HispanicMPR.com. That's editor at HispanicMPR.com.